Thank you. This was most kind. So I will begin by saying that this moment for a lot of Israelis, for a lot of Jews, and generally for a lot of people around the world is a moment when we are letting go of delusions. And it's hard. Some of those delusions are deeply held. But if we are truly to emerge from this moment stronger and better, we need to finally let go of those delusions. And I see how some of them are still perpetuated now. But we're never going to get to anywhere better if we will continue to close our eyes. So I want to make the argument that October 7th, 2023 was decades in the making. And I want to address the two aspects that were built over decades. The first is the sustaining and stoking of the Palestinian vision that Israel is temporary that Israel can be undone, that with enough patience and violence, they can ultimately win the war that they have failed to win in 1948. So that's one piece that was decades in the making. And another piece, which we're seeing erupting globally, is the mental preparation that whatever happened on October 7th, the Israelis had it coming. So I want to address those two aspects. The first about the Palestinian issue. Just so you understand how powerful the delusions still are, we are hearing still people say Hamas does not represent the Palestinians. Now I know we deeply want to believe it. We want to imagine that some alien race entered Gaza, hijacked its people, and committed atrocities completely unrelated to what came before it. But if we will continue to hold on to this delusion, we are only guaranteeing that whatever happened on October 7th will happen once more, and even worse, if that is possible. Because where did Hamas emerge from? Hamas emerged from an idea that is known here as from the river to the sea, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Palestine will be free. Of what? Of sovereign and free Jews. Of the state of Israel of the Jewish state. I tweeted a few days ago that the day that from the river to the sea will have the same social standing as Heil Hitler, we will have made a massive step towards peace. Because that will be the moment that people will understand the ideology that has been animating this conflict forever. Now, I grew up in the Israeli peace camp I cheered every land for peace proposal. I deeply believed that the day that the Palestinians will have their own state 
in the West Bank and Gaza is the day we will have peace. I wanted us to just get out of there so that they can finally pursue their own lives. We projected onto them our imagination, our vision. We thought that just like Zionism, just like the Jewish people, all that the Palestinians wanted was to just build a state, even if only in part of the land, and that as soon as they would be free to do so, there will be peace. And like many Israelis of the peace camp, I followed how again and again, and this is not going too far back, with the Arafat in 2000, with Abu Mazen in 2008, and in later, later opportunities. Again and again, when faced with clear, concrete opportunities to have their own state in the territory of the West Bank and Gaza, no settlements, ending the military occupation, full independence, capital in East Jerusalem, every time... They walked away. And not only did they walk away, what followed was brutal violence. People were surprised by October 7th by the brutality, but it's not new. People call the violence of the years of 2001, 2, 3, 4, the Second Intifada is shaking off. It sounds so benign. Those were brutal massacres in cafes, in restaurants, in buses, against people who just went out to have pizza. And this was after the Palestinians could have had everything that we were told they wanted, that the problems were the settlements or the occupation or East Jerusalem. So there it is. They could have had it. And they walk away and they follow it with brutal massacres and violence. So a lot of Israelis began to ask a simple question. What do Palestinians want? I asked that question. And remember how people think that it's really important that we dialogue? So I participated in some of those dialogues. And to their credit, they were very clear. They told me that the Jews are not a people. You're only a religion. You have no connection to the land of Israel. Nothing. You don't have the right to self-determination. And I remember those were moderate. I participated in events with moderate Palestinians because I was a member of the Labor Party working with Shimon Peres. And I realized how they think about the issue and how I think is completely different. I thought it's about land, occupation, freedom. They made it very clear to me that the problem is my very existence. And as I started to do the research for this book, I came across a remarkable phrase by British Foreign Minister after World War II, Ernst Bevan. If you know anything about him, he was not a friend to the Jewish people nor to the Zionists. But he got it. And he needs to explain to the people of Britain why Britain is throwing the mandate that it received from the League of Nations to help the Jews achieve sovereignty throwing it back to the United Nations. And he says the following, this is the date, February 1947, there's no state of Israel, there's no refugees, there's no occupation, there's no settlement. All of the things we're told are the problem. They don't exist. 
And what does he say? He says, His Majesty's government has come to the conclusion that the conflict in the land is irreconcilable. He calls it irreconcilable in February 47. He says, look, in the land there are two peoples, Jews and Arabs, so there were no question about what the two groups are. And he says, and each one of these groups has one top priority, the thing they care about more than anything. And he says the following, for the Jews, the top priority is to have a state. The Jews want a state. For the Arabs, the top priority is for the Jews not to have a state in any part of the land. Listen to what this conflict is, because this is the conflict, and nothing else has changed. The Jews want a state. The Arabs want the Jews not to have a state. That's it. That's the conflict, and that's why it's irreconcilable. You can't divide the land. You can't, I mean, that's not what's going to solve this issue. Which means that the only way that we ever begin to come close to any kind of peace, to any kind of change, is that this idea that the Jews should not have a state in any part of the land, this idea has to go away. Because this is the idea that has sustained generation after generation of trained murderers. Hamas is not some new uh, phenomenon. When you have an entire people who are mobilized for the idea that there should not be a Jewish state, which means that they try to do it in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s, and they failed in 1948, because despite their considerable efforts, the state of Israel emerged as independent. They didn't accept this outcome. They immediately got to work to try to undo that. Through repeated wars and economic boycotts and international condemnations and the refusal of the Arab refugees to ever be settled. Because the Arab refugees, now known as the Palestinians, they understood that the day they will resettle is the day that the war against the Jewish state is over. So generation after generation, they refused resettlement. They hijacked an organization called UNRWA that was established temporarily to help them resettle. But they hijacked it in a long train of hijacking things. They hijacked UNRWA to make it essentially a Palestinian organization. And they were very smart about it. Initially, UNRWA was going to be called REWA, R-E-W-A. But they insisted to have the letters UN so that it will have this cachet of international legitimacy. But it's not. It's a Palestinian organization completely devoted to the idea that Palestinians do not have to come to terms with the existence of the state of Israel. So they've created unique conventions of being refugees generation after generation, of inventing something that doesn't exist for any other refugee group, of a right of return to another sovereign state. All unique conventions for the Palestinians intended to convey one thing, that from their perspective, 
the war of 1948 is an open case and that they can still win it. And you know, when the book came out, I invented a word called West planning. We see a lot of it now in the media. West planning is when Western diplomats and journalists explain away what Palestinians have just said. And to the credit of Palestinians, for a century, they have made their intentions very clear. That's why Ernst Bevan was able to know what they wanted. But Westerners don't want to look it in the eye. So Palestinians will say what their intentions are, and Westerners will explain it away as knowing it's about the occupation, it's about territory, it's about the conditions in Gaza, all the things that they never said. And in Gaza, just so we understand, two-thirds of the people who live in Gaza despite almost all of them being born in Gaza, having lived there all their lives, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents were born there. They're not displaced by war, but they consider themselves refugees from a war that supposedly ended more than seven decades ago. So when the West pours billions into Gaza, thinking that the problem is the conditions in Gaza, that they just need more money. But this is an entire society. There are no dissenters on this. Again, we need to let go of the delusion that there's any dissent on this in Palestinian society. This is a society mobilized for the idea that their duty is to liberate Palestine from the river to the sea. So when money flows into Gaza, when cement flows into Gaza, they don't think, oh, let's make Gaza a beautiful, prosperous example of what it's like when Palestinians control territory. No, they say, great, we now have a launch pad, literally a launch pad from which to take back, in their mind, Palestine. So any money that will flow there is guaranteed to serve the war machine. And it's not just Hamas. Generation after generation, trained murderers emerge to liberate Palestine. The perpetrators of the massacre of the Israeli athletes in the 1972 Munich Olympics were graduates of honor schools. The current perpetrators and planners were graduates of honor schools. They did what they did because they believed that in doing so, they were liberating Palestine. This is the euphoria that you saw in the first few days. That's what they spoke about. That's what they want. Now, I'm reading now a fascinating book called Embracing Defeat about Japan. Because... We need to think on that scale. Today, we think of Japan as a lovely country of sushi and Pikachu. I'm sure you know that the atrocities committed in Korea, in China, were on a level and a scale that is unimaginable. On the eve of surrender, Japanese society was described as a society mobilized for death. 
Even in Nazi Germany, there are few people who tried to assassinate Hitler towards the end. In Japan, there was no such dissent. And it was understood by the American occupiers that if there were ever to be peace, Japan as a society had to change. It wasn't enough to just disarm the Japanese military, which is why it's not going to be enough, even if we kill all 30, 40, 50,000 trained Hamas murderers tomorrow, if all the tunnels are gone, if all the weapons are gone, there will be another group of trained murderers rising under another name. Just as like we had Fatah and Jihad and the DFLP, there will always be a new organization rising to liberate Palestine until we finally understand what we're up against. So I know that this is not easy because most people want to escape the magnitude of the challenge. Much easier to go with the cliche of Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinians and they just want a better future and let's just make sure that the aid flows in. Unless Palestinian society rethinks its very goals, its very values, what it means to be a Palestinian, we can never move forward to peace. That's what we need to address. So that's one aspect that has been decades in the making. And too many have closed their eyes to what was going on. And now I just want to say a few words about what's been decades in the making here and around the world. For years, if not decades, we have been subjected to something that I call the placard strategy. The placard strategy, and you know what it is because you've seen it on placards in anti-Israel demonstrations, is the process by which you write on one side of the equation, Israel, Zionism, sometimes you just draw uh, a Star of David, and then an equation sign. And the placard strategy has been so effective that we know what's on the other side of the equation. Colonialism, racism, apartheid, Nazism, genocide, ethnic cleansing, and just to give you a sense that those words are not chosen for their description of reality, because they're not, they're chosen because they evoke evil. And how can you see that? Because in recent years, it was written that Zionism and Israel equal white supremacy. Where did that come from? It only came from the fact that the mood here was that white supremacy is evil and everyone agreed. So let's take white supremacy and put it next to Israel and Zionism and the Star of David, regardless of, you know, any kind of historical sense. Now, the placard strategy has been so powerful and effective that you can put an anti-Israel speaker on TV for 30 seconds and no matter what the question is, they will manage to say apartheid, genocide, racism in that answer. And what happens in the process is that we are all subjected to an ongoing refrain that says Israel, Zionism, Star of David equal evil. 
Israel, Zionism, starve David, equal evil. And it's a refrain that keeps, you know, it's in academia and it's on television, it's on placards, it's everywhere. And as I'm sure some of you know, it is the greatest legacy of the Soviet Union in America. The Soviet Union no longer exists, but its greatest legacy is very much alive. Every time that someone says Israel apartheid, Israel genocide, a Soviet angel flaps their wings. Because this is the idea that they developed already in the 1960s and 70s. So it has nothing to do with recent actions by any Israeli government. And the Soviets understood the importance of respectability. They are the people, the heirs, of those who wrote the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, today, anyone can publish a book. But more than a century ago, a book, that meant respectability. And it's not a coincidence that the Protocols is one of the most published books till the present day. Because suddenly, all these libels and conspiracies were given the respectability of a book. But after World War II, the Soviet Union could no longer be open anti-Semites, right? They just defeated the Nazis. You don't get to be more anti-anti-Semitic than defeating the Nazis. And, of course, they brought down Tsarist Russia with its anti-Semitism. So the Soviets developed the respectable anti-Zionism with its equation of Zionism in Israel with all that is evil. And the empire doesn't exist anymore, but it's very much alive here. And after decades of having that in the making, what we saw erupt on October 7th is that moment, the preparation of decades, that because Israel and Zionism are evil, then they had it coming. Because that's what you do with evil. Right? You don't negotiate with it. You don't divide land with it. You eradicate it. So anything that was done is thereby retroactively justified. And that's why you can see so many people in the streets with no sense that they are holding abhorrent positions. Because for decades they've been trained to believe the placard strategy that anything Israel and Zionism equals evil. So, when I get to this point, a lot of people are utterly depressed because it's much easier to say, let's kill 30,000 Hamasniks and go home. It's much, much harder to really root out ideas that have been built and indulged and sustained decades. But as I was reading this book about Japan, what was fascinating was the debate among the American policymakers between the radical branch and the less radical branch. The radical one ultimately won. The radical branch claimed that the non-radical one were only trying to trim a very sick trait. But that if Japan were ever to be a peaceful society, the entire tree of militarism, of a society mobilized for death, had to be uprooted, branch and root. 
And that's the kind of radical visionary thinking that we need today. Ultimately, this was a vision that brought peace, that created a different world, that created a Germany and Japan that are pillars of a peaceful world, which would have been unimaginable in the 30s and early 40s. So we need that kind of radical vision that first of all understands what we're up against, refuses to indulge, refuses to give in to easy cliches, and ultimately is willing to do the hard, long work necessary to create a real transformation in Palestinian society. Thank you. Please, yes. <laughs>